lesson is today? The alarm cock sounds part three. <laughs> Made one lesson into three. This is the alarm cock sounds for Judas, for Judas Iscariot. All right, once you're positioned in Matthew 27, you know, if you turn the page, at least in my Bible, if I turn the page, I only have one more page to turn in Matthew. And then I'm through with Matthew, right? Because we're in chapter 27 now, and there's only 28 chapters in Matthew. So are we getting close to the end of our Life of Christ study? No. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> because guess who has a whole lot about the end of the, the Lord's last day there and the crucifixion and everything? John, right, John. So we'll be, we'll be in John a long time, probably at least a year. We have at least another year of Bible study even though he's about to be crucified. Isn't that amazing how much there is? Just incredible. Or how much I can stretch it out to be. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time we can set apart in our busy, busy lives with so many things going on that we can just concentrate on you, getting to know you better through a study of your life. And we do thank you for this privilege we have yet to freely meet in our country. And may we never take that for granted, and we thank you that for the fellowship that we can have with sisters in Christ, those who love you and, and want to dig deeper and to know you better just as we do. True fellowship is what we have here, because true fellowship is communion with one another through your word, and that is indeed what we have here this, in this study. Now we pray that you would help us to concentrate on what your spirit has to say to each of us individually. May the spirit of the world have no entrance in this room this morning, in our thoughts, or in any way. We just ask that you would bind Satan from any kind of interruption, that your Holy Spirit can truly just flow freely. And um, I know it's going to be a difficult lesson to look at the end of a wicked person, but even in all that, there's so much that your spirit can teach to us individually. And we ask for that, and we ask that everything that would be said here and thought here would be to glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we discussed in our last lesson, Matthew gave us just one verse about the Lord's third religious trial in front of the Jews, which was held merely to give the appearance of legality to the Sanhedrin's completely unjust condemnation of Jesus. And Luke alone, remember in Luke 22, Luke was the only one who gave us some details about that third religious trial. Well, then in Matthew 27, verse 2, we read of the Jewish religious leaders delivering Jesus over to whom? Well, to the Gentiles, and specifically, yes, to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, in future lessons, we are going to learn more about the Lord's trials as he stood before Pontius Pilate and also as he stood before Herod. But today, as we come now to verse 3 of chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel, we find that Matthew switches gears for a minute to give us the account of the end of Judas Iscariot. And he begins in verse 3 with these words, Then Judas, which had betrayed him. And what we do not see in our English Bible is that the word betrayed, if you look at that word betrayed in verse 3, is, and it refers to whose betrayal? Judas's betrayal of the Lord to the, to the Jews, which he did in Gethsemane, 
That word betrayed is the exact same Greek word which is translated as delivered in verse 2, which refers to the chief priests delivering Jesus to the Gentiles. And that word is peridolomi, peridolomi in Greek. I had to keep practicing that. <laughs> I won't even try to spell it for you. But it ties together these two events, the events of one, verses 1 and 2 with verses 3 to 10. You see, Jesus was not only betrayed by Judas, one of his apostles, who delivered him into the hands of his enemies uh, in the Jewish high council, but Jesus was also betrayed by that Jewish council into the hands of, of the Gentiles, represented by Pilate. So it was, do you get it? It was a double betrayal. He was betrayed by one of his apostles, and then he was betrayed by the Jewish leaders of the nation. And that is exactly what he himself had predicted would happen seven chapters earlier. If you go back and look at Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, as he was setting forth on his final journey to go up to Jerusalem, he turned to his disciples, all 12 of them, and he told them what they could expect to have happen when they got to Jerusalem. He said, this is Matthew 20, verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed. There's that same Greek word, peridodomi, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. That's his prediction of Judas's betrayal. He says the man, Son of Man will be betrayed unto the chief priests. And then he goes on and says, and they shall condemn him to death. Isn't that what had just happened in that third religious trial? They had just done what he said. They had condemned him to death. And then he went on and said, and they, speaking of the chief priests and the scribes, shall deliver him. That again is that same word, peridodomi. They shall deliver him or betray him to the Gentiles. To do what? To mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. I wanted to point this out. I am going to read our scripture, but I wanted to point this out so that we would not only see the double betrayal of the Lord Jesus, but so that we are again reminded of the fact that none of the disciples should have been surprised at the events that were taking place that night. They had all been predicted. And this is just one time when he predicted these things. He predicted these events over and over again. Uh, Peter should not have been surprised, and guess who else should not have been surprised? Judas. Judas shouldn't have been surprised. The Lord had to told all of them more than once that he would be condemned to die, and he even said specifically that it would be by way of what? Stoning to death? He said it would be by way of crucifixion. Now, in other passages we had, have looked at in the past in our study, we saw he got very specific about such things as the fact that they would even spit in his face, that they would mock him, and that they would punch his face with their fists, all of which were also predicted in the Old Testament. He told his disciples that this was going to happen, but it was all predicted way back in the Old Testament. We've been looking at some of those verses in the past few weeks. So why had Peter been caught so off guard? He had been told about these things ahead of time. And why, as we're going to look at in our study this morning, why is Judas now so troubled? Matthew 27, 3 tells us that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he became very distraught, as we're going to be discussing. 
But why should he have been so distraught? He knew, as did most of Israel, that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They had made that abundantly clear. And he knew that when he turned Jesus in. So it's obvious, isn't it, to us that Peter, Judas, and the other ten disciples may have heard Christ's predictions, but what had they chosen not to do? They had heard them, but they had chosen not to believe them. Really, they had dismissed them. Every time he said he was going to be crucified or put to death, and they, they heard it, but they didn't believe it. Their ears heard, but their minds dismissed what they heard. And that's amazing, too, when you think about the fact that a lot of the times when he predicted what would happen, he also said, but on the third day, I will rise again. And I was thinking about how we, do, we can do that, too, right? We hear, we hear over and over again the predictions about the Lord's second coming, don't we? And all the events that are going to be taking place in the near future, we hear them, but are we dismissing them or are we living in the reality of them? Are we going to be caught surprised when they actually happen like these guys were? Or are we going to be ready for them? Because he is coming, and he's coming again soon. And my nose is dripping, so excuse me. <laughs> oh, I had a Sudafed sitting on the counter, but guess what I did? I left, and it's still sitting on the counter, so I'm not dried up. All right. You didn't need that information. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and read the passage, all right? <clears throat> my husband, when he listens to my tapes, he says, you know, you're not very distinguished sounding sometimes, Catherine. <laughs> like the one when I made the rooster call, was that here or did I do that in Sanford? I did the rooster call and the peacock call up in Sanford, and it was on the tape. My husband said he went, oh, no. <laughs> all right, let's look at Matthew 27, starting verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him, same word, as uh, we're going to see in verse 3, betrayed, to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So you could put there, instead of delivered, you could say they betrayed him. They betrayed him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. All right, now here's our new passage for today. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, that Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed, same word again, the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. And by the way, it is still called that today. The Arabs have a name for it that means, literally means, the field of blood. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. In other words, Israel valued him at the price of thirty pieces of silver, which was the price paid for a pierced slave. That's what they 
how much they thought Jesus was worth, the value of Jesus. Verse 10, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. And that's an interesting verse right there, but it goes back to Zechariah 11. So you need to read that. I won't have time to talk about that, but it was appointed unto Judas to do all that. All right, at any rate, we do, um, we do not know where Judas Iscariot was during the time of the Lord's three religious trials. We don't know where he was. But because Matthew, in verse 3 here, does tell us that he saw that Jesus was condemned to die, and the Greek verb which is used literally talks about seeing with his eyes, it's apparent that Judas had been a witness of at least the third Jewish religious trial when Jesus was officially condemned to die. It could also be that he saw the religious rulers spit on Jesus. He could have been there, you know, maybe even followed along from Gethsemane and um, maybe not have witnessed that trial before Annas, but he could have seen what was going on in the first trial before Caiaphas, you know, when they did, after the trial, they spit on him. He may have witnessed them buffeting Jesus with their fists and mocking him and then turning him over for, to the temple guards for more abuse. We don't know. He may have seen all of that. But for certain, Judas saw that Jesus was formally condemned to die and that when he was bound, he saw that and they saw him lead him off to, to Pilate or take him off to Pilate. So as the new day dawned, it also dawned on Judas just how heinous his part in all of this had been. His kiss of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane was really nothing but a hypocritical way of spitting in the face of Jesus. I would say that it was even worse. That kiss from Judas was worse than the spit in his face. Why? Because it came from one who had been so close to the Lord right? And yet betrayed him. And he did it to one who had never done anything wrong, had never shown even one degree of being self-centered or unkind to Judas in all the years that Judas had been with him. Even with his calloused heart and his willful unbelief and his evil ways, ways, Judas could not escape from that divinely given inner sense called what? Guilt. He couldn't escape from that, you know, which God uses to, to remind men of their sin and to warn us of the consequences of sin. There was yet an innately given sense of right and wrong within, within Judas. And that was, of course, fortified by his knowledge of Scripture. You know, he had grown up, Judas had grown up knowledge, knowledgeable in the Scriptures. He was a Jew. And uh, he would have been raised learning the Old Testament scriptures. So he knew right from wrong, right? He did. He knew right from wrong. All that, you know, just played on his, uh, on his conscience. He saw his sin. Now, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that Israel had been looking for. But he did know that he was a man who was not worthy of being treated so horribly as he had witnessed. And he did know that he certainly didn't deserve to be crucified. I don't know what he was thinking when he turned him in. Maybe he was thinking that they would just slap his wrist or, at the worst, stone him to death because that was their way of dealing with people. But I don't think he expected him to be turned over to the Romans, even though Jesus had said he would be, right? And crucified. 
But Judas now realized that it was because of him, because of him, that Jesus was going to die. And suddenly, and likely very unexpectedly, there was churning inside of him an intense sense of guilt and remorse that he, did, he could not bear if he didn't find some kind of relief. So verse 3 tells us that he did what? It says he repented himself, doesn't it? He repented himself. And that sounds good initially, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like the prodigal son who finally came to his own mind, <laughs> into his own mind. It sounds good initially. But we need to examine things a little bit closer. True spiritual repentance involves a big change of heart and mind. It means that one turns away from his or her sins and turns to who? Turns to God for forgiveness. You turn away from your sins and you turn to God. The Greek word for that type of genuine repentance is the word metanoeo. But that is not the word that is used of Judas's repentance here. The word used to speak of Judas's repentance is metamelome, which instead refers to regret or sorrow. See, Judas's experience here was an experience of emotional remorse and not spiritual repentance. Genuine repentance not only involves a change of mind about your sin, but it does involve a turning, a, and a, turn, a turning away from it. Not only that you change your mind about your sin, but you turn away from it. But vitally, the most important part is that it involves a turning to God. A lot of people, you know, will try to turn from their sin, but they'll turn to other things, right? Turn away from their sin, but they'll turn to something else, like good works, so vitally, for true spiritual repentance, you have to turn to God. There's, and if you notice, there's no mention of God at all in Judas' repentance. Instead of turning to God, running to the temple and beating his breast and not even, you know, putting his eyes up, but turning his head down like who did? Remember the penitent publican in the, in the temple? Instead of doing something like that and crying out, I have sinned, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Instead of doing that, who, and this is important, who does Judas turn to? Right, you got it. He turns to the priests, the chief priests. Verse 3 tells us he turns to the priests. He confesses his sin to who? The priests, not to God. You see, he turned to false religionists for his help. And consequently, did he receive any help? No, he received none. Why in the world would Judas turn to the very ones who had just denied the claims of Christ and condemned him to die? Why would he confess his sin to them when they were the ones who delighted to encourage his sin and even pay him for it. Kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But people do it all the time. They turn to false religionists instead of to God. There's a general truth here for the world. All false religions also deny the claims of Jesus Christ. So they cannot possibly offer any solutions for those who feel the weight of their guilty, sinful souls. The sinner cannot find relief from those who do not know the Savior. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
A sinner can't find relief from anyone who doesn't know the Savior. That's why Scripture says over and over again such things as this. This is Joel 2.12. Therefore saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. And it says in Acts 8.22, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God. If perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and he will abundantly pardon. You think if Judas turned to Jesus, he would still abundantly pardon him at this point? Do you think he would have? You know, some of the chief priests did get saved and they condemned Jesus to die. Yes, Jesus would have abundantly pardoned him at this point if Judas had turned to him. But Judas didn't run after the Lord Jesus as he was being led from the hall of stones there in the temple over to Pilate. He didn't run and fall before him and beg him for mercy and for forgiveness, did he? Judas didn't turn his eyes and his heart toward Jesus when he suddenly was convicted of his sin as who had done the minute that cock crowed. Where did Peter's eyes turn? To the Lord. Judas was convicted of his sin. Jesus was still there being bound and led away. He could have turned his eyes to Jesus. Do you think Jesus maybe would have been looking at him? I think he was looking his way, but Judas didn't turn to him. Judas turned his eyes to the religious leaders, and he turned his heart inward toward his own pain. Peter was broken. Think of the difference of this. Peter was broken in pain because of the, I mean, he was broken because of the pain he felt for the Lord. What he had done in disappointing the Lord and how the Lord was, you know, hurt because of his denials. And he wept his eyes out. His heart was focused on the Lord. And we know that because we know where his eyes went. And we know that because... Who do we next see Peter with? When we next see Peter, who is he with? Good guys or bad guys? He's with the good guys. He's with James and John and all the rest of them. His his focus was on the pain he was causing the Savior. Judas was focused on his own pain. And interestingly, we find that there's no mention of tears at all when it came to Judas. He didn't even try to find any of the other disciples to seek their forgiveness for what he had done or to ask them what he could possibly do to get himself right with God. Instead, he turned to the priests of his religion. He was a man who did not know God, going to other men who did not know God to seek for release for his guilty soul. And that is a formula for zero help, isn't it? One sinner going to another sinner, neither one knowing God, and you're going to release your guilty soul. It's a true formula for no help at all. So Judas went to Caiaphas's crowd with his confession, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Um, the declaration by Judas Iscariot, we talked about this last week, of, of Christ's innocence, Um, was amazing in the fact that he said, the innocent blood. I don't know if he understood the significance of what he was saying, but we know that the Lord can use even the evil of men to praise him, right? As he had used Caiaphas earlier to say it is, you know, important that one man should die for the people. 
He didn't realize the importance of what he was saying. I don't think uh, that Judas understood the importance of what he was saying in declaring that he had betrayed the innocent blood. But nonetheless, God knew. And Jesus is the only one in the whole universe who had innocent blood. So he had the innocent blood. But his declaration here of the Lord's innocence and his righteousness and his sinlessness carries great weight because of the fact of his long personal acquaintance with Jesus and also because of his betrayal of him. You see, if there were any faults at all in Jesus, Judas would have seen them. And especially after having betrayed him, Judas would have liked to have to remember back, you know, his three and a half years spent with, with Jesus. He'd like to remember something wrong that he saw the Lord do, right? Wouldn't he? Because that would help to justify his actions of having betrayed him. But uh, so it's a great testimony, the fact that someone who spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus day and night and had betrayed him and would love to point out some fault in him to justify his action, yet says, I have betrayed innocent, the innocent blood. That is a great testimony. Well, so Judas had underestimated, which many people do, he had underestimated the harm that sin will cause. Not only to others, you know, it's a domino effect. Sin just doesn't affect you. It affects others, doesn't it? Always. He underestimated the harm it would cause others and to himself. Sin is very good at making big promises and playing down the seriousness of evil. And it never tells you, sin will never tell you, how it will bring you more trouble than you ever, ever bargained for. And Judas is an example of this, as well as being an example of the truth that it is possible for a wicked sinner to come to the point of being sorry for his sin and even try to reverse the consequences of his sin. He's an example, Judas is, of the fact that it is possible to even be under conviction about sin and even confess sin and, guess what, still not be saved. He did confess his sin, didn't he? Judas did confess his sin. He said, I have sinned. There are a lot of people in the Bible that confess their sin. Pharaoh was one of them. Did Pharaoh get saved? There was others. I could give you examples, but Balaam confessed it too. Judas confessed his sin, and he didn't even try to blame anyone else, did he? He didn't say, well, you, you guys made me sin, did he? Or blame anything. He said, I have sinned. And he also went on, not only did he confess his sin, but he went on to declare the Lord's innocence. And you know what? These are absolutely necessary things for salvation. I'm not saying they're not. It's important. We need to confess that we're sinners. And we need to uh, admit that the Lord is the only righteous one, the only sinless one. But a person can have these kind of reversed feelings that Judas had and can confess his wrong. And he can even declare that Jesus is sinless or speak of the greatness of Christ or even intellectually confess that Jesus was the son of God. And yet, it does not mean that that's sufficient enough to save him. Remember, even the demons know who Jesus is. Even the demons admit he was sinless and that he's the son of God. They know it. 
So that's not a guarantee of salvation. True repentance involves a 180-degree turn. Half of it is away from sin, and the other half is to Jesus Christ. True repentance involves asking God for his forgiveness and trusting the Lord Jesus as the one and only Savior from sin, the only one who made forgiveness possible. If Judas had genuine repentance as Peter did, he would have focused on Jesus. His focus would have been on Jesus. There would have been some tears shed as he mourned over his sin. But we don't read of of Judas turning his focus on Jesus at all. We don't read of Judas who did not need to fear for his life as Peter did. Right? Judas didn't need to fear that they would kill him because he, he was on their side, the side of the chief priests. So he could have run after the Lord as he was being led away to Pilate. And as I said earlier, he could have begged him for his forgiveness and acknowledged him as Lord, as did the penitent thief on the cross next to Jesus. Didn't he? You know, he confessed his sin and Jesus' innocence, and then he prayed and called him Lord. We don't see Judas doing this. Yes, it's true that God Almighty did amazingly use Judas's testimony regarding his betrayal of the innocent blood to give evidence to the sinless character of his son. But confessing the innocence of Jesus by itself does not save anyone. You know, there are people out there in the world who can look you right in the eye and say, yes, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner, I know Jesus Christ is the Savior, and I know he's the Son of God, but I don't really care. Can they confess all that? What is it always a matter of? It's not really so much what a person says. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. You know, he did, Judas pronounced the innocence of Jesus, but you know who else did too? And We're going to see it in the weeks to come. Pilate. Pilate declared that Jesus was innocent. Three times he said he was innocent. And yet there's no salvation there. Pontius Pilate didn't get saved. Even though Judas confessed his wrong and Christ's innocence, he did not change his mind about Jesus' identity. He did not acknowledge Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Nor did he acknowledge his own need for salvation. He said, I'm a sinner, but he didn't say, please, you know, how can I be saved? (laughs) He didn't turn from his sin either. He confessed his sin, but did he turn from sin? No, not really, because you know what he did? Next thing he did was commit another sin. He went out and committed murder. You know what suicide is? Self-murder. It's self-murder. It was an extreme form of self-retribution. He was sentencing himself. I think he went to the chief priests hoping maybe they would stone him to death because it does say in Deuteronomy that one who accepts a bribe to condemn some uh, innocent person to death should be, you know, capital punishment, stoned to death. And I thought, I think maybe he was feeling so guilty, he went to them hoping they would stone him to death. But they had no interest in doing that, so he went out. And it was a form of self-retribution because he sentenced himself to death. But suicide is self-murder. It is rebellion against God's sovereign right over life and death. You know, I got to think that suicide is really no 
better than abortion. Same thing, because you are taking the matters of life and death into your own hands, and you are aborting a life. Now, a Christian who commits suicide is forgiven for what he's done, but it is because, you know, when Jesus died, he died for all of our sins. But yet, it is where you're going to be facing God if you do that. I hope nobody in here will ever do that, but it would be facing God with having defiled the temple. It's the same thing as going in, you know, like they could have in the old days, like Antiochus Epiphanes did, and abominating the temple. Because we are the temple of God now, right? So if you take your own life, you're destroying the temple of God. And it is, it's, it is uh, breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. All right. Um, so, so Judas did something that, you know how many people, the last statistic I found was 30,000 people a year do. And that is that he took his own life. I think it's among young people is the number one way of death is by suicide. Uh, and he, he, so he did something that many people, in one way or another, tr- um, try to do to appease their guilt. Now I'm going to get away from the suicide. Before he got to the suicide, he did something else to try to appease his guilt. He tried to make restitution for his sin by giving back what? the 30 pieces of silver. He's trying to make retribution for his sin by giving back the betrayal money. Money and other things that are gained by evil means can absolutely eat away at a person's mind and heart. You know, that which Judas previously had coveted, that was his big sin, wasn't it? Covetousness. I don't know when he first sinned. Maybe it was as a little boy when he stole some money or maybe as a teenager, but he had a problem with coveting money. But uh, what he previously coveted was now absolutely repulsive to him. The reward of iniquity, as Peter called Judas's 30 pieces of silver over in Acts chapter 1, Peter called it the reward of iniquity. That turned out to be a reproach and not a reward. The supposed gains of sin always eventually turn sour. Judas's attempt at restitution for his sin also came too late. It came too late. He had waited until after Jesus was already condemned. You know, he could have come forth during that second or the third trial as a witness for Jesus, right? He could have come for Jesus trying to rescue him and give back the money then, along with a full confession to Jesus as to what he had done, his sin. But he didn't. His only desire now, you see, was to salve his own conscience, which is what he tried to do by taking back those 30 pieces of silver. Just as he had taken his, his confession of sin to the priests, he also took his restitution to the priests. He was trying to make his, his own way for atonement of his sins, wasn't he? He was trying to atone for his sins his own way. But he couldn't do that because no man can do that. We can't make atonement for our sins. If we've committed a sin, we can't undo it. We can't give it back, can we? Like he's trying to do. And no priest, whether good or evil, can make atonement for another person's sin either. You do know that. I hope you know that, right? My grandmother grew up, um, well, I grew up in a church with priests. 
And my grandmother grew up in a church with priests. Her priests you would actually go to to confess your sins. You know, all know about that. And um, over the years, she got very, very disenchanted with the priests because they would want to know more and more details about her sins. And when she would leave the little confessional booth, she said she never really felt any relief, you know? And and she felt even worse because they wanted to know all the little nitty-gritty details. No priest can atone for your sins for you. There's only one person in the universe who can make atonement for sin. And that person is Jesus Christ, the God-man. It is only by way of his innocent blood that atonement is made for any sin. To get it to make, you know, to be, have, be forgiven and to have that burden of guilt roll off your back, who do you have to go to? Only one, Jesus Christ. Confess it to him and ask him for his forgiveness, which he made possible. Well, in response to Judas's attempt to return the 30 pieces of silver, the religious rulers who were finished with him, I mean, he was merely a pawn that they used for their own evil purposes. They said to him, look at verse 4, what is that to us? See thou to that. They refused to accept any responsibility for receiving the bribery money back. They were as indifferent to Judas's guilt as they had been to Jesus's innocence. Nice guys, right? You know, often when people are engaged in doing something wrong, who do they like to go to? Other people who are also doing something wrong. And that's originally what Judas did. He originally went to the chief priests, and they had agreed together to do their evil. Sinners like to seek out other sinners who will join them in their sin. But what is the end of all of that? What's the end of that? Well, look at verse 4. When Judas, burdened with guilt, burst in upon these chief priests and blurted out his confession of sin and Jesus' innocence, was the response of the priests sympathetic? And understanding and compassionate? No, anything but. They rebuffed him. These men who just a few hours earlier had been his co-conspirators turned away from him with scorn and contempt and said to him, you know, what's that to us? In effect, what they're saying is, so what? We could give a hoot. You know, deal with your own problems. We got enough to deal with. We got to make sure this guy is crucified. So what? Get on your way. What a humiliating put down that was to Judas after he had just spilled out his distress and and the torture of his soul to them. The supposed spiritual leaders. It's not like he's just going to anybody, you know. He's going to the supposed spiritual leaders of his nation and his religion. But they have no concern for him. At all. No concern for his spiritual condition, no concern for his need. It was a huge, huge mistake for Judas to go to them. False religionists. Hadn't he been warned by Jesus over and over about these guys? What did Jesus call them? Hypocrites. Why would Judas? Judas wasn't listening to Jesus at all, was he? Beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, you know, hypocrites, vipers. Judas had heard all that. And yet he goes to these false religionists with his confession when he should have gone to God. And the consequence was that he was not helped at all 
not helped at all. He was left to himself to deal with it. These religionists didn't feel guilt. And if Judas was bothered with a guilty conscience, then to him, to them, he was a fool. You got a guilty conscience? You're a fool. They had no time to spend with a guilt-ridden fool who meant nothing to them anyway. Judas was a man who was desperately in need of help. But their answer to him was, so what? You're on your own, bud. Nice, huh? These men truly, you can see, truly suffered from hardness of heart, evidenced not only in their treatment of Jesus, Jesus, but also in their treatment of Judas. They had no concept of ministry, did they? No calling of God in their hearts, which is to help out people at any cost. They were so spiritually blind that they were also always able to justify their behavior by rationalizing and twisting the truth. They were obstinate unbelievers. They had no interest in people at all having peace with God. Do you want those kind of people to be your shepherds? People who don't have any interest in you or in your peace with God and your burden of sin? The fact is, you know what? They had no remedy for heart trouble with sin. They didn't have the remedy (laughs) themselves. So, of course, they couldn't help anyone else. Their specialty was hardening the heart to those kinds of feelings of guilt over sin. So they were absolutely no encouragement to Judas whatsoever to live a holier life. They were not in the business of trying to separate people from their sin and make them holier. They were in the business of fleecing the people in order to uh, gain personally for themselves. Terrible, terrible leaders. And are there leaders like this of false religions? Yes, yes. They're almost always just like this. (laughs) Well, Judas could have gone to find James and John and Andrew. Um, I don't know if he would have found Peter. (laughs) I think Peter was weeping his heart out in Gethsemane somewhere, but he could have gone to find the other guys, but he had determined to leave the good guys. And he didn't know, he didn't even now try to seek them out at all. So, So how does it turn out? How does it turn out when you turn to others who are bad like you? How does it turn out? The people with whom you sin will sin against you, for they are in it for themselves, aren't they? And we should therefore always be be very careful of those with whom we entrust ourselves, those with whom we hang out even. You know, don't hang out with even another Christian who tends to pull you down. If you're not strong enough to pull them up, maybe you shouldn't associate so much with them. The bottom line is that no one is going to be there when you give an account of yourself before God. No one else will be there with you. You're responsible for your own life, aren't you? So be careful who you hang out with. Having gotten nowhere at all, nowhere with the priest, Judas then cast the 30 pieces of silver onto the temple floor. We see that in verse 5. You know, I got to thinking about this. The chief priests' indifference, their total indifference and lack of concern for Judas, 
He had gone to them to confess and to, to give a retribution for his sin. They were totally indifferent, and that indifference actually result, resulted in Scripture being fulfilled. Do you know that? If they had just said, okay, Judas, you know, we'll say some little prayer for you, and they took back the 30 pieces of silver from him, that would not have fulfilled Scripture. But in making him upset and angry, what did he do with that money? He cast it down. And that fulfilled Zechariah 11, 11, 12, or 12, 11, 13, I can't remember. 12, 13? 11, 12, and 13, where it says, you know, he cast the money down, and they took it and used it to buy a potter's field. If he hadn't cast it down, it wouldn't have filled, fulfilled Scripture, exactly like it said. That money, you see, had bought him no pleasure at all, had it? None. He didn't even spend one of the silver pieces. It had brought him no pleasure whatsoever. There comes a day when filthy lucre and stuff that's accumulated at the expense of selling out Jesus in one's life can make a person sick. You know, there's a lot of people out there selling out Jesus for even less than 30 pieces of silver, aren't there? Spending their whole lives accumulating stuff or doing things for their own self and their own pleasure. Eventually, that'll come home and make a person sick, whether in this life or the next. Love of mammon has cost many a person absolutely everything. Everything. Their soul. Their eternal relationship with God. So Judas's action of casting the money down was one of frustration and anger and hopelessness. The priests were not going to help him appease his conscience or help him make restitution for his sin. Nor were they interested in changing their verdict about Jesus. I don't know. Maybe he went in and thought, well, they should have a three-day delay. I don't know if Judas thought about this, but maybe. They should have a three-day delay because wasn't that the law? And uh, have extra time for witnesses to come in and maybe change their mind about their verdict. And so he's going in to say, I made a mistake. Jesus is innocent. But he sees now they're not going to change their verdict about Jesus. So he's angry, frustrated, hopeless, and he throws down the money and he races out of the temple into the streets of the city. Now, he would have to pass through one of the gates of the city to get out into the country somewhere where he sought escape from conscience. Judas was in absolute, utter despair. He was gripped by guilt and grief, but he was absolutely helpless to ease the pain of his anguished soul. So he did what some 30,000 people a year do. He took his own life. He committed suicide. God only knows how many people commit suicide because they feel so guilty and they can't get rid of it. And they think that's the answer, not the answer. Matthew alone of all the gospel writers, the four gospel writers, Matthew is the only one who tells us of Judas's death. Now, we do get extra information about his death from Acts 1. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Matthew's the only gospel writer. And in verse 5, he tells us that he went out and did what? How did he die? He hanged himself. The Greek word actually means he strangled. Of course, that's what happens when you hang yourself. You strangle. He strangled to death. And the only other information we do have about the death of Judas is given to us by Peter, interestingly, when Peter um, spoke to the 120 disciples who were gathered in the upper room after the resurrection of the Lord and before the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he gave a message. And in that message, this is in Acts 1, 18 and 19, if you want to look at it, um, 
In that message, Acts 1, 18, Peter told his listeners, the 120 disciples, how Judas died. He said that Judas fell headlong, fell headlong, and burst apart in his middle so that his guts spilled out. I almost hate to talk about that, but the Greek word for a burst actually means that when he fell, it made like a popping sound. Oh, awful. Like an overripe fruit just bursting. You've seen an animal dead on the road with the guts spilled out. That's what happened when he fell and hit the bottom. Apparently, now we know we have to put the two together. He hanged himself and then he fell, right? <clears throat> Apparently, he had climbed to either the pinnacle of a hill or a cliff and tied himself, uh, likely with his cloth girdle, you know, around his middle, um, to a rock at the top of that hill. He tied himself to a rock, or he could have tied himself to a tree limb. And then what did he do? He cast himself over the edge of the precipice. By the way, in doing this, Judas's death by hanging was a fulfillment of the prophetic type of Judas found in Ahithophel. Ahithophel, you remember, was a dear close friend of King David. And what did Ahithophel do? He betrayed King David. And he's the type of Judas. Do you know how Ahithophel died? By hanging. He committed suicide. Hmm, perfect type of Judas. Perfect. Judas bungled his life, didn't he? More than any other person has ever bungled up a life of opportunity. Judas bungled his life. But he also bungled his death. Under the weight of his body, a tree limb may have snapped. Or the fabric, you know, his fabric belt may have loosened if he tied it around a tree or a, or a rock. Or whatever took place, the result is that he went to hang himself and strangled to death, but then his body fell, and it was an awful, gory ending. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. Death. It was a terrible end. I got to wondering, you know, I just spe I sit there and I speculate, and I thought, you know, maybe Peter ran to Gethsemane, and there he was weeping his heart out right where the Lord had sweat drops of tears, and I thought, I wonder where Judas went to hang himself, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if he went to back to Bethpage? Remember Bethpage? It was about halfway between Bethany and Jerusalem, and it was like only a mile away. And that is where on Tuesday, now remember this is Thursday, I mean Monday, on, that is where on Monday Jesus cursed, what? A fig tree. I was just thinking, wouldn't it be interesting if he went and hung himself on the cursed fig tree? That would be really very appropriate. But anyway, that's just my mind going. If I wrote a novel, that's what I would have in the novel. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, that the unbeliever who commits suicide does not solve his problems, his or her problems. They simply make them worse, and they make them permanent. To get rid of the torment within, Judas went straight to the torment below. Didn't resolve anything for him. He went literally from the frying pan into the eternal fire. Awful when an unbeliever commits suicide. It doesn't solve anything. Acts 125 tells us that 
His soul went straight to his own place. And you know that said of no other person in Scripture. I guess there must be a special place for Judas in hell. He had been warned, remember, by the Lord in Matthew 24, uh, 26, 24. He said to him, or to all of them, but he was speaking specifically to Judas, Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. But Judas hadn't heeded the warning. Actually, the Lord had warned him many times, but he never heeded. Unlike Peter, when Judas sinned, he didn't turn to look to the Lord and run to weep in broken repentance. He looked to false religionists, and then he ran out to seek death as a way to release his guilt. But death does not relieve or remove guilt. It confirms it forever. So he rushed headlong into eternity, unprepared and unforgiven. And it just does not get any sadder than that, does it? Well, meantime, back at the temple, we are told that the chief priest, and this is just insane. <laughs> when you read this, you just go, what? <laughs> they insanely reasoned among themselves that it was not lawful for them to put the silver pieces that Judas had scattered on the temple floor back into the temple treasury because it was blood money. <laughs> now, there are two amazing truths to that statement. First of all, by admitting that the money had been used for the price of blood, they were indicting themselves of murder. The price of blood is a reference to money illegally paid to get someone murdered. So they're admitting they're, that, that they're guilty of murder. So just, in the, just think about this, this, these few verses we're looking at this morning. Just in this passage, we have had Judas Iscariot, the first betrayer of Jesus, testify of the Lord's innocent blood. And now we have Israel's high religious council, the second betrayers of the Lord Jesus, testifying to their own guilt in shedding that innocent blood. Isn't it amazing? It is just absolutely incredible. That's the first thing to notice. Now, the second thing to notice from verse 6 is how very, very strange religion can be. Religion can be really weird. I mean, we've got, well, I probably shouldn't go there. Well, why not? I'll just go there. We've got somebody running for president who wears woolen underwear with satanic symbols sewn in them. I mean, religion can be really weird. And he's a smart man. I mean, otherwise. These rulers had no problem. Just look at how weird this is. These rulers had no problem taking money. Likely, very likely, they took those 30 pieces of silver out of the temple treasury to pay Judas for betraying Jesus. But they suddenly developed reservations about putting that money back into the temple treasury. I mean, how absurd is that kind of thinking? It, it didn't bother them to ignore God's laws of justice to condemn an innocent man. But now they have spiritual heebie-jeebies <laughs> about putting defiled money into the treasury. We're going to see this over and over again because a little bit later they don't want to go into um, the praetorium because they might defile themselves. 
Are they just committing to murder their own Messiah, but they don't want to go, you know, into a Gentile residence and defile themselves so that they can't eat the Passover? You see how weird it is? Talk about straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. They were the experts at it. And this is so typical of false religions, which can be very, very scrupulous about small matters. Have you ever been to another country and and seen what um, some of the other religions will do? For example, the Muslims... They will. They have all these little places where they wash their hands and feet before they go into a mosque and put, you know, go down and, and pray to Allah. They, you know, they scrupulously clean their hands and their feet, take their shoes off, etc. And yet, these are the same ones who will murder innocent Jews and Christians for the sake of jihad for Allah. You see what I'm talking about? You know, straining at gnats. So we're going to have clean feet, but we don't mind strapping on bombs to blow up innocent children and women and people. That's false religion for you. How right on Jesus was to call these guys hypocrites and vipers and whited sepulchers. No wonder he spoke so harshly against them more than anyone else. Well, the chief priests counseled together and decided that they would use the blood money to buy what? A potter's field in which strangers could be buried. You know, they're going to give the world out there the appearance of how good they are. They're doing a good work here. The word strangers would likely have referred to Jewish visitors to Jerusalem. You know, Jews lived all over the place, and they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the holidays, the feast, the Passover, or whatever. And some of those Jews might die while they're there in the city, and they're considered strangers. So they're going to buy this potter's field to have a place to to bury, you know, because they're supposed to be buried the same day they die. And also strangers would refer to... um, Romans or other Gentiles who happened to be in the city when they when they died. It was considered by the Jews defilement to have the presence of Gentiles in their city. So a cemetery purchased by tainted money would, uh, in their minds, be a fitting place to bury those unwanted foreigners. You know, well, we can use this tainted money to do that. You know, we'll buy a cemetery for these Gentiles. What irony, think about this too. What irony is there in the fact that the money used to betray the one who is himself the resurrection and the life, the money used to betray the resurrection and the life was used to purchase what? A cemetery. Is that not something? The 30 pieces of silver were used to buy a cemetery. You know what? If they had accepted Jesus, As their Messiah and Lord, there would have been no need for cemeteries ever again. He would have had to have died, yes. And the Romans would have, for some reason or another, have found a reason to kill him and crucify him. But three days later, he would rise again and he would have set up his kingdom. And it would have gone on for a thousand years and we would be in the eternal state right now. There would have been no more need for cemeteries. Amen. A potter's field was a place where... Potters collected clay, you know, to use in their trade. It is believed that this particular piece of land purchased with Judas's 30 pieces of silver was situated on the south side of Jerusalem, just outside of the city on what, today, what was called the Hill of Evil Council. Hill of Evil Council. Some also equate it with the Valley of Hinnon, you know, which is where Gehenna gets its name. But that area was... Uh, composed of clay that was very suitable for potters. But because the clay had been, much of it had been depleted 
By the time of Christ, the land was very cheap. It was inexpensive to purchase. It was not any longer suitable for agricultural purposes, and there was no more clay left in it, so it would make a good graveyard. And the Jews obviously thought that in purchasing a potter's field for the burial of foreigners was a positive gesture to present to the, uh, the public. You know, it was a demonstration of their sympathetic concern for the needy, those who died while in the city. Aren't we so kind? But nobody, you know, nobody believed <laughs> what they wanted to spread about it because it is still to this day known as the field of blood, which again is amazing because... Um, it, it is the whole city, the whole city of Jerusalem was attesting to the Lord's innocence and calling it the field of blood. You can see over there in Acts one nineteen that the Greek word for it is akaldama. Akaldama is when, and like I said, the Arabs, I guess, who have possession of that little piece of land right now, they have a, a, an Arabic name for it, which is very similar to the Greek word akaldama. I can't pronounce it because I can't speak Arabic, but it still means to this day the field of blood. So it's still to this day giving testimony to the fact that the money used to purchase it was money that was used to, a, to a condemn an innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now tell me, in closing, tell me this. Answer this question. What are the chances that an uninspired person, uninspired, some 500 years ahead of time, could predict such remarkable circumstances as the precise sum of money that would be used to pay for the Savior's blood and that the ultimate disposal of that money would be to purchase a potter's field. <laughs> what would the chances of that be, you think? One in 17 zillion trillion jillion? <laughs> <laughs> no way. But that is exactly what the prophet Zechariah did. But, of course, he was not uninspired, was he? He was inspired. The spirit of the living God told Zechariah these precise things that would happen to the Messiah, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that that silver would be cast down, not just handed over, cast down in the temple and that it would be then used to purchase a potter's field in which to bury strangers. You see, the religious rulers, unbeknownst to them, were proving that Jesus was the Messiah. All along, everything they did, they were proving that he was the Messiah. Well, I had one more paragraph, but we're past time, so let's just Let's just close in prayer, all right? Father God, it is indeed a hard thing to do to look at the end of a wicked person, as we've done today. But we need to be very honest about this, as, as you are. We do know that for years, Judas would have said that he was a follower of, of Jesus. But the whole time, he was living a hypocritical life, a dishonest, disobedient life. Nobody is a believer who persists in living a dishonest life. It is possible, we know, and it's frightening. It is possible that a person can give every appearance of being a true follower, of being wheat. 
but it is where his heart is that, that may tell us something else altogether. And, of course, we can't see the heart, but you can. And so, Father, we do thank you that Christ offers genuine opportunity for us yet today to truly be saved. We still have the, the, the choice to make. We can go the way of the eleven, or we can go the way of Judas. And, Lord, I would just pray with all of my heart, may there not be any of us here in this room this morning who will ever, ever go the way of Judas. If we're in doubt about our salvation, may we seek out one who knows you and take care of that issue today, for it is all important. Lord, we love you. I thank you for the hunger of your people. I pray that they have been satisfied by the bread of life. I pray that we'll all have a wonderful two weeks apart and that you'll use us to be witnesses for you, that other people will come into the kingdom because of our testimony, and that we will all assemble here together in two weeks, ready to go again. For we do ask these things, Jesus, in your wonderful, blessed name. Amen.